If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to meet me in Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. Hebrews chapter 9. Here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to read this whole thing at one time. I'm going to work my way through it. So I encourage you, pull out a Bible there in your pew if you don't have your own. Always good to bring your own Bible with you to church. That was a, that was a rule in the house that I grew up in. My dad told us we had to bring our Bibles to church, and it's always helpful to have a Bible with us. And his reason was, one, it's God's Word, but two... Uh, we can have it and follow along, and we can uh, see where this truth is taking, and from went there from the place from which this truth is taken, so that we can dive deeply into it. The, the The Bible itself is God's revealed will to us. It's His Word. It's the way God reveals Himself to us. So I encourage you have a pew Bible there. Grab it uh, if you're looking for it. It's on page. Uh, let's see what page it is. One thousand and five in the pew Bible. If you have your own Bible, Hebrews chapter nine. I'm just going to kind of work it through it paragraph by paragraph from verses 1 through verse 22. Once we conclude, I'll try to tie it all together. But uh, I'm going to pray for us before we jump right into this. But really, we're just going to go verses 1 through 5, and then 6 through 10, then 11 through 14, then 15 through 22, and just kind of break them down as we work our way through them in a very kind of systematic way, in a little different way than what we usually do in the sermon time. So let's pray together, and we'll go from there. Father, we thank you so much for this word. We we look forward to reading it. We look forward to learning what it means. We look forward to, to diving more deeply into the truths of your word. But, but what it teaches us about Jesus as the one who provides our redemption. Jesus who is, is our forgiveness, who is our redemption, who cleanses our consciences. Uh, that is a, a great desire we all have. Um, we can cleanse our bodies. We can cleanse our behaviors. But we... we we struggle with seared consciences, and that is um, by design. That's the way we were made, and that conscience reminds us of our need for a Savior who can truly free us. And as John tells us, and as Jesus would say in John's recording of Jesus' words, the truth shall set you free. And so, Father, we pray for the truth this morning to be heard from your word. For it is in Christ we pray, hide me behind your cross so that Christ may be seen. For it is in him we pray. Amen. Here we go, verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, uh, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. So the author here is continuing, if you've been with us, you know, but if not, he's continuing to explain, really chapters 7 through 10 of the book of Hebrews is really a, a pretty in-depth explanation of what we know as the new covenant, how the blessings of a new covenant in God's grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Six different covenant formulas in the Bible. The first is in uh, Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and then after Adam breaks the covenant of works that God establishes with him, uh, the next five 
formulas or iterations of covenant that God enters into with Noah in chapter 9 of Genesis, with Abraham in chapters 12 through 17 of the book of Genesis, uh, with Moses in Exodus 19 and 20, with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and then with us, God's people through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Those are iterations of what we call theologically the covenant of God's grace, because God in his grace extends the opportunity for us to come into relationship with him. The author of Hebrews centers his understanding of the new covenant, of the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ our Lord on the idea of access to God. For him, religion is access to God. And so he is, wants us to understand that we have access to God, that good religion, true religion, not only gives us access to God, but enables us to enjoy fellowship with God through that access with God. And so here in the beginning parts of chapter 9, he turns our attention backwards, his reader's attention backwards to what would have been known to his original readers as the old covenant, uh, would have been uh, the expression of worship in that old covenant that comes from the covenant God entered into with his people on Mount Sinai through Moses in Exodus 19, 20 and following. And where they met with God was called the tabernacle. And in the book of Exodus, God gives specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle, and they were to be followed explicitly. And one of the points that is often thought of, or at least I often think of when I think about the old covenant, the tabernacle, the establishment of worship of God in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is the specific nature that God gives for the creation and for the building and the erection of the tabernacle that will later be followed out and put in stone when they build the temple in first kings as solomon builds the temple one of the points is that's god's prerogative god is the god who sits upon high god is the sovereign lord of all creation god is the one who has chosen by his grace to enter into a covenant relationship with his people and um so he gets to set the standard by which the tabernacle is built, by which the people of God are to interact with him. I think that's an important point. One of the things that challenges us in our modern society is that we want to set our own individual standards. And sometimes we want to confront the standard of God. In fact, that's not a new thing. That's something that's gone all the way back to the book of Genesis where Adam and Eve decided they wanted to set their own standard. They wanted to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so they could then set the standard by which they are to live their lives. The me generation goes back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were the first. They were the grandparents, the great-grandparents, however you want to say, the first ancestors of the me generation. We have all followed suit. God sets the standard. The standard is the standard. And in these verses, he refers to the tabernacle. He says the tabernacle was built. There's a tent of meeting where God met with his people, the place of meeting, and had two rooms. He went in the first part of the tabernacle. There was this big room, and it was where every priest who was on duty, every Levite who was on duty, went into uh, that room and performed their ritual religious duties on behalf of the people. If you were on duty, you had responsibilities, and those responsibilities had to do with the bread of the presence, had to do with lighting of the lampstands, had to do with burning of incense, etc. I don't have time to dive into that, 
But he had certain responsibilities. And the priests did it on behalf of the Israelites because the priests were what were, the, were those who were, quote, mediators of the relationship between God and his people. people. The people of God, the Israelites, had access to God through the ministry of the Levites. But there was an inner sanctuary as well. So there's a big room and then there was a second room. And that second room was a place called the Holy of Holies. No one was able to enter into that except for the high priest. It was his specific responsibility. He went into that Holy of Holies one time a year. He didn't stay long. But he went into it one time a year. And he went into it covered in blood. He went into it after having cleansed himself. He went into it to represent God's people before what was known as the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant had a mercy seat. It was where God was supposed to have sat with it before his people. The Ark of the Covenant, on the lid of it was a place called the mercy seat. That's where God sat with his people. On earth with his people. He gave them access. And so he's getting to this point. God sets the standard. The high priest goes in. He is the one person. He's the chief. He's the one person who has this opportunity to go in. Much like in a sense where we just saw this past spring, maybe early summer, the Archbishop of Canterbury has the responsibility of crowning the monarch in the UK. Other priests can serve in Westminster Abbey, but only one member of the Church of England can crown the king or the queen. That's Archbishop of Canterbury. Same here. Anybody can minister except for this one place, this one holy of holies, and only one guy can go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. His name is the high priest. All right, let's pick it up in verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. That's what I just said. But in the second only, the high priest goes. He only goes once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of his people. So in other words, he goes in there once a year, taking a blood sacrifice, covered in blood, sprinkling blood, uh, to purify God's people before the presence of God. God's holy. God's just. God's the creator of the universe. Sin and the consequences of sin require death. Life must be given. You understand when God gave life to his people in the Garden of Eden, they had the opportunity to eat from the tree of life. They could continue on in a state of fellowship with God, in relationship with God. Adam and Eve had this opportunity. And God says, you can eat from any tree in the Garden of, uh, in the garden of, uh, of Eden. You can eat from the tree of life even. Because you live in a right relationship with me. He enjoyed fellowship with his people. But they chose to eat from the one tree he said they cannot eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And once they ate from that tree, then they were required to leave God's presence. And in Genesis chapter 3, we're told that a guard went and stood before the tree of life because that kept them from eating of the tree of life and staying in that sinful state. There was no hope of redemption if they had eaten from the tree of life and their sin against God and their rebellion against God. We're also told that God in his grace took the sacrifices of animals. He killed animals and clothed them in their nakedness and sent them out of the garden so he didn't have to kill them because the punishment for breaking God's command was immediate death. 
But God was gracious. He took the sacrifice of an animal. So this priest, this high priest, goes in to the Holy of Holies to be in the presence of Almighty God who sits on earth with his people on the mercy seat. And as he goes in there, he must go covered in the blood of a sacrifice which he offers to God on his own behalf. It's God graciously receives in the place of the priest. But he also goes in not only for his own, uh, a sacrifice for his own sins, he goes in and offers a sacrifice for the unintentional sins of God's people. You know, sin is one of those things in our lives. We don't talk a lot about sin anymore. Sin is breaking God's covenant, breaking God's rule, breaking God's d desire for our lives, breaking God's will for us, um, and breaking, against God, breaking God's standard. Sin is committed in two ways. One, in what we actually do that is in contrary to the will of God, that's, that's contrary to God's will, so in contradiction. So Adam and Eve ate specifically from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They broke God's command. You tell lies because you don't want to tell the truth. You and I uh, allow our passions to take over we don't want to live in self-control, etc. We can list all kinds of things that we do to break God's command. God says, I want you to be in my house and worshiping me. We choose to go do other things. Those are intentional decisions out of our own will that we choose to do in violation of God's will for our lives. In that instance, in the Old Testament, the people were to offer their own sacrifices. They were to bring their own sacrifices, their own bulls, their own goats, their own sheep, their own birds, etc. They were to bring all of that and say, I know that I have specifically sinned in these specific ways. I confess these sins to God, and I bring this sacrifice to offer it in my behalf. And God was gracious to allow them to do that. He would take that sacrifice in place for their own lives. But sin is also committed by unintentional things. Sometimes we just do things we don't mean to do. Uh, you're in traffic and you become judgmental of the person driving in front of you. Um, you get caught up in a moment and uh, you wail off and knock somebody out because they've just irritated you and you, you weren't able to control it. And you didn't intend to do it, you just did it. Or there are things that you just didn't do and you don't even know you didn't do them. Or there are things you did and you don't even know that you did them because in, your, in, your, in your, your walk with God, you're just not aware of those sins. And the high priest was to go in on your behalf on the Day of Atonement and offer a sacrifice for those unintentional sins. Things you didn't know that you had done. And so his job was to not only go in on the Day of Atonement to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, but also for the unintentional sins of God's people so that God could live in relationship with them. A holy God could live in relationship with them so that God could cover up, as it were, the blood of the animals, cover up, as it were, the sins of the people, intentional or unintentional. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. You probably have experienced this at some point in your life. Maybe you're experiencing it right now. Here, here's the problem with, with this system. The problem with this system is uh, I commit sins that I know that I commit, and what if I didn't get a chance to offer a sacrifice for the sins that I know I intentionally committed? Now, am I still guilty? Are those things still held against me? Thankfully, the high priest is offering a sacrifice for my unintentional sins, but what if I don't 
offer a sacrifice? What if I don't confess every sin I have ever committed intentionally? I've left some out. I didn't get a chance to confess them before I came to the end of my life. What happens? See, if it's based upon your confession, then what happens when I don't confess? But on top of that, and this is probably where most of us are, I know what I did, and I offered perhaps a sacrifice for that sin, if I'm living in the Old Testament, and the high priest has offered a sacrifice for my unintentional sins, but that gummit, I know in my mind, in my conscience, I have broken God's law, and I can't seem to get it cleansed, because I know I'm a sinner. Yeah, I've offered a sacrifice. What's that really going to do? Because internally, I know that I have willingly broke the command of God. There's no peace when the conscience is seared. There's no peace when the question remains of the conscience, am I redeemed? Am I reconciled to God? That other way could cleanse the body. It could cover up the sins that I intentionally commit or that I do in behavior, that I do in morality, etc. But what about the spirit and the understanding that I have broken God's law? I'm no good. The guilt and the shame remain regardless of whether or not the sacrifice has been offered. I'm guilty and I'm ashamed of that guilt. And that old system, the author says, could not cleanse you. Look what he says. Let me go pick it up in verse, the end of verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. You'll never be able to cleanse your own conscience. Doesn't matter how much you try, how much effort you put into it, how much work you do, how, much, uh, how often you attend church, how great your service is to the church. No matter how nice you are to people, no matter how much you give to the needy, no matter how much you do whatever it is you choose to do to try to somehow make atonement for your own sins, you'll never cleanse your conscience. You'll never deal with guilt. And perhaps that's why so many in our society today are spiraling out of control. Angry and bitter at the world because they can't deal with their own sense of guilt and shame. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you are, are really just struggling to keep your head above water and, and deal with your own sin and your own shame and your own guilt. And you, you're, you're snappy and you're, 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 you attack and you... Uh, pull away from and you isolate yourselves because you don't want to deal with who you really are. Nothing you do on the outside is going to satisfy the pain of the inside. The author of Hebrews says, but there is hope for us. He wants them to understand that that old system was as great as it was in the moment. It, it doesn't work. So he picks it up in verse 11. 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this, world, this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Let me stop right there. He says, all right, so when the great high priest, who is Jesus, right, he's already established that. Uh, in our study of the book of Hebrews, we've seen he's already established that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is the great high priest. When he came, when Jesus came and he appeared, he, he entered into a greater, more perfect tent. He, he didn't go into an earthly tabernacle, though Jesus did go to the temple, and though Jesus did read from the scroll, though Jesus did uh, attend the feast days in Jerusalem. Sure, he did all of those things. But ultimately, Jesus didn't enter into earthly things only he entered into the divine sanctuary of God that heavenly dwelling place of God how did Jesus do it well Jesus is God he's not limited by human ancestry the way you and I are he is human but he's also divine so Jesus enters into this glorious sanctuary a tent not made with human hands rather one that has stood from all of eternity he entered it once and for all, verse 12, into that holy places. And he entered it not by blood of calves and goats as the high priest would have. He entered it into by his own blood that he offered for you and for me on his cross. So what he says here is, at this point, Jesus has come, entered the heavenly dwelling place of God. He entered once and for all into the holy places. He secured an eternal redemption. Two things. Number one, that we need to know about Jesus' entering in his sacrifice. Number one, it was once and for all. There's absolutely no reason to re-sacrifice Jesus. We don't need to come have the Eucharist every Sunday and re-sacrifice the body and the blood of Christ. It's done once and for all. There's no reason for us to... to to re-sacrifice that sacrifice over and over and over and over and over again. It was once and for all. Done. When Jesus hung on the cross, John chapter 19, he breathes his last, he says, it is finished. When he says it is finished, he means it is done. And it has long-term implications, eternal implications. That's the second thing. Notice what he says. By means, thus securing an eternal redemption. If the sacrifice that was offered for you and for me in the heavenly tabernacle was of eternal origin, as was the Lord Jesus Christ in his divinity, then it has eternal implications. Okay? So he says, Jesus enters the heavenly home of God, the heavenly dwelling place of God, and he offers himself as a sacrifice that secures eternal redemption once and for all. Verse 13. For the, blood and, uh, for the blood of goats and bulls and their sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, the reference to an, uh, an ancient tradition with a red heifer, is an odd tradition, but if that sprinkling of the blood and the defiled persons with the ashes of a red heifer sanctify, means set aside, right? Make holy, for the purification of the flesh. And so if, if you're going to have blood sprinkled on you and you're going to have ashes thrown on you for everything that you've done wrong and it, 
And somehow, in some way, God in his grace chooses to allow that to be that which makes you holy and sets you aside and purifies your flesh. And that's indeed what the Old Testament Jews believe. That's how God reveals. That's true. That's how God reveals himself. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me say this to you. Here's the thing. Your problem ultimately is not what you've done and the lasting impacts of those things. You, you can deal with the consequences of those actions you have taken. The ultimate problem that, that will haunt you the rest of your life and to the point of your deathbed is the spiritual and internal reality of shame and guilt for those actions you have taken and for the mistakes you have made. And what you need is not just to have those actions externally purified, cleaned up, washed. What you need to have is the inside cleansed. That conscience forgiven. That shame taken away. That guilt removed. That's what you need. That's what I need. It's what the readers of Hebrews needed. It's what every human being who's ever walked on this face of the earth needs. To have the heart cleansed. If the other things couldn't do it, but yet they could cleanse the body, how much more can the perfect redemption of Jesus Christ our Lord cleanse the soul, cleanse the conscience, remove the guilt, take away the shame? He says, the only way to have your guilt taken away is to be washed in the blood of Jesus. The eternal sacrifice by his own blood paid the penalty for your sins. Let me read the rest of these words and I'll wrap it up. Verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Why did Jesus have to die? Could Jesus not have offered himself for us without dying? Perhaps, but the author changes terminology to some degree from a covenant to a will, same language, same word, same idea, but now he says that covenant has become a last will and testament, and for a last will and testament to be executed, the person who made it had to die. So you could be forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus. But if Jesus doesn't die and rise again, you are not an inheritor of the promises he has given to you. But because he has died and risen again, you and I have received 
the eternal inheritance that has been given to us because the one who made the will has died and therefore the will is being executed and the descendants have received that which is theirs by virtue of the desire of the will, the person who made the will. And so now the author says, death was necessary for you to inherit eternity. Verse 17 and following, therefore not, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both uh, the book itself and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant of God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Friends, 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 friends. Blood, the shedding of blood is the taking of life. Life had to be taken to satisfy divine justice. In the Genesis 3 episode, as I've already said, God took the life of an animal and gave the clothing to his children. Throughout the, new, the Old Covenant, throughout the Old Covenant people of God, in the old way of doing things, the animal was slaughtered. The life of the animal was taken in the place of the sinner. And his blood of the animal atoned, covered up the sins of the sinners. And in the New Covenant, the blood of the eternal Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, was offered once and for all on the cross. His blood was spilled. His body was broken to cover up the sins of the sinner, to cover up your sins and to cover up my sins. Throughout the entirety of the Bible, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. What is the most costly thing you have to give someone? I thought about this question this week. What is the most costly thing I have to give someone? What costs me the most to give someone? Is it faith? Is it love? Is it grace? Is it kindness? Is it some material possession? No. It's forgiveness. Because when someone hurts me and offends me and cuts me to the core, I have to die to my pride. I have to die to myself. You do as well. We have to die to ourselves to be able to extend forgiveness and say, it's okay, I forgive you. To truly give forgiveness. The most costly thing you could ever receive from God in heaven is forgiveness. And it cost God his own son's life. It was given to you when your Savior spilled his blood, entered into the divine holy of holies, once and for all, for all eternity. 
And in that blood, you have received redemption, cleansing, purification, and sanctification. Your conscience can be cleansed because the sacrifice has been given. And the sacrifice is the one who was offended. And the sacrifice is eternal. And the sacrifice is greater than anything you can ever give. And so there is cleansing through the Spirit of God in our consciences. He took my shame and hung it on a cross. He took my guilt and put it in the ground. And he rose in victory for your life and for mine. That's the beauty of the new covenant. That's the wonder of Hebrews chapter 9. To understand Jesus as he really is. And because he rose victorious, you and I are guaranteed to receive the eternal promise of everlasting life. Friends, don't carry guilt and shame with you. There's no need for you to carry it. It's been taken care of. In Jesus Christ our Lord. The conscience has been cleansed. Stop trying to cleanse it yourself. And start allowing Christ to cleanse it in his word. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, hearing, and preaching of his word. May he call us to himself. May we respond in grace through faith. Now as we conclude today.